You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. I'm Mick Garris, and from Nice Guy Productions' world headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, this is Postmortem. Stephen King is his own genre, and he is ubiquitous. If there is a network or studio without a King adaptation in the works, well, there must be something wrong with them. Currently and upcoming, we have Two Wits, A Couple of Pet Cemeteries, a remake of The Stand, The Outsider, Creep Show, Castle Rock, The Long Walk, Mr. Mercedes, In the Tall Grass, and Dr. Sleep. It's a world I've spent a lot of my life in, personally and professionally, and there is good reason for this renaissance in King's work. He is one of the best storytellers America has ever known. But today, we're here to discuss just a small slice of King's creative world, the land where the Overlook Hotel rises above all else, and well-meaning family man and would-be author Jack Torrance descends into a maelstrom of madness, The Shining. The book came out in 1978 and was followed in 1980 by Stanley Kubrick's adaptation. King, famously not happy with the film, got the opportunity to hew closer to his work when he wrote and produced a six-hour miniseries that I directed in 1997. In 2013, King returned to The Overlook in his sequel novel, Dr. Sleep, which tells us about an adult Danny Torrance after a life that was curdled by his childhood experiences. And now, in 2019, Mike Flanagan has written and directed the movie version, which manages to deftly straddle the worlds of King and Kubrick. It's not Flanagan's first trip to the King well. He also adapted Gerald's Game, a book many thought was unfilmable, and made it into a hugely successful Netflix movie. We'll talk about all the permutations of The Shining, books, movies, and television after this. Your homepage for horror is here. Fangoria.com is now live and brimming with the digital horror content that you crave. Fangoria.com is your destination for all of the stories that couldn't fit in the physical magazine. Long-form pieces, deep dives, and daily thoughts from the biggest names in horror, exclusive access to the Fangoria vault, as well as a constant curation of our favorite links from across the internet. Right now, all current subscribers to the magazine are automatically members of Fangoria.com. And as promised, the content of the new issues will be forever in print only. If you're not already a subscriber, check out the new Fangoria.com for yourself and see the horror right before your eyes. Use the promo code POSTMORTEM for 15% off right now. That's Fangoria.com. So, Mike, what was your first exposure to the world of Stephen King? Oh, wow. My my very first exposure ever um, to the King world was It, the novel. Uh, And and I was way, way too young. How old were you? Uh, This was all when I was about in fifth grade. Um, Uh, And and around the same time um, was the first time I saw the Kubrick film. Um, but mm-hmm. I didn't. I didn't connect it to Stephen King at the time. Oh, good parenting, it was, it was right? just a different. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, ter- I was not allowed to to do any of this. Right. I, I was. I was not allowed to see The Shining. I saw it at a friend's house, and was so terrified by the experience of it 
um, and so kind of traumatized by that movie that I said, I don't want to watch horror movies anymore. Uh-huh. Instead, I want to read and I'll read scary stories because that will be less frightening because I can control the experience way better. Um, was the King the author was of the first scary stories that you wrote, read? Um, the first adult ones. I mean, I think the right. first really sophisticated ones. I mean, I, I had kind of graduated to King very organically. I started with John Belair's books, um, which had ghosts and wizards and devils. Right. And I went from there to R.L. Stein and Christopher Pike. And I, mm-hmm. I kind of worked my way up the ladder to King. Right. Um, but I, I vividly remember the moment when reading it um, where I realized how far over my head I, I was, where I, I, I'd, I'd really misjudged the situation. And it was a much more terrifying experience really? in my imagination. And this is a very dense, dense very thick oh, book, too. Huge! And, and uh, way too, uh, you know, way, way too big, not only in, in kind of density, but in, in theme and, and in terror than I was prepared for, but I had to get to the end. Right. And it became this moment a very formative moment of bravery for me as a kid that I made it to the end. And I had to, because I needed to know that those kids would be okay. Right. That was what it was all about for me. I, I had identified so strongly with those kids. Right. Um, and so this really profound thing happened to me where I realized I had managed to be brave in very short increments <laughs> in order to make it through the book. And, and I would put the book down when it became overwhelming and I would have my nightmares and I had to make it to the end. I cared too much. Um, and I was so exhilarated by that by the end of it that I, I started to just ra- rapidly consume a, a, as much of his work as I could. Right. All at first, uh, looking at it as exercise of character. That mm-hmm. that these little you know it was like going to the gym uh, for courage, uh-huh. and that it, so if, you were testing your metal. Yeah, and I was I was a very scared kid. I, yeah. I was scared of a lot of things and. Rather I, than turn your back on it, you were confronting it. Yeah, and, and, and in little bursts. It was really, and, and, and it took me until almost college to come back to movies, to come back to scary movies. Really? Yeah, I, I, I preferred the freedom that I had of being able to look away from the book, to put the book down, to close the book, and pick it back up when mm-hmm. I felt like I was ready to try to, to push through it. Whereas a movie was this kind of onslaught of imagery that I couldn't protect myself from. Um, and I would be scared, uh, and I think we might have even talked about this last time we spoke. I can't mm-hmm. remember, but I, I, I was terrified of Thriller. You know, that yeah. I was the kid hiding behind the couch. Right, that, right, which, yes. And, and yeah, and we, we talked about your incredible connection, you <laughs> yes. know, to, to that. Um, uh, but, to be a zombie. Both of us were. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Cynthia was also a zombie with me in there. God, that's so cool. <laughs> it was great. That's so cool. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, so I, I, I kind of came around the long way, and, and by the time... I was in high school and in college and had come back to horror cinema. By then, Stephen King was my kind of the, the bedrock of, 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 of my life as a reader. Right. And, well, I know. think we have so much to talk about just in terms of The Shining and all its permutations. Yeah. Um, but I do want to touch on Gerald's Game, which was the one book that I'd wished I'd been able to make. <laughs> and, and you did such a great job filming an unfilmable thing. But tell me, I know we talked about it last time, but uh, now in the world of King, tell me how that connection began, how you finally made the connection with King and were able to get this film made. Um, me, to get Gerald's Game going. Yes. Yeah. yeah it, it, that all goes back to Oculus. Uh, mm-hmm. and the movie, it was my first real movie. 
Yeah. You know, it it had it had uh, it had come out to a pretty, you know, kind of an iffy, very actually very mediocre, you know, box office. Box result. office, but it was really well received critically. Yeah, critically yeah. yeah. And 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 kind of as as the movie was trucking out there and, and kind of sputtering out its its little mm-hmm. theatrical run. Um, this tweet just appeared uh, out in in the world that was Stephen King <laughs> tweeting about Oculus and and he had enjoyed the movie and I just about lost my mind <laughs> um, and I my agency at the time you know they they leapt yeah, at bet. that yeah. and just oh my god well we'd love to we'd love to talk and see what's up there and and he kind of vanished again mm-hmm. um, but while I was working on my my second film I was working on before I wake um, another. Not widely seen, but incredibly good movie that people should seek out at oh, any moment. Thank you. I, I think when we sat down last time, the movie was still in. It was in its, limbo. Yeah, the it's video purgatory. had not come out yet. Yep. And it was just. It came out shortly after. I think we had to get a, a foreign Blu-ray of it. Yes. yes. Yep. You guys Could, had the Canadian yeah. Blu-ray. Exactly. Um, exactly. And then it, and then it hit Netflix. That that yeah. movie's had its its own kind of painful road, but yes. Um, but while I was working on that. Uh, the opportunity basically came up uh, through Rand. Rand um, Holston, Stephen King's agent. Yes. Um, who had said, you know, yes, he did. He, he enjoyed uh, Oculus. If you want to make a proposal for something, you know, you can send me a letter and I'll see that he gets it. Oh, good. Uh, and, and the one that I'd been carrying in my bag, I think you and I had a very similar kind of uh, feeling about that book, about yes. Gerald's Game, about yeah. what an irresistible challenge it is oh it's so powerful yeah yeah the people who say it's unfilmable don't get it yeah it 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 it, i i always believed it could be done and it could be so cool and and so i i sent the letter basically begging for a chance to to do a draft um and uh and he said yes and i i wrote the draft i loved the draft and i couldn't get anybody behind the film because at the time Hollywood had this idea uh, that there wasn't kind of a market for Stephen King material, which I mean, yeah, well, take wow. a look around. Folks. Yeah, <laughs> I, it was that thing of like, oh, it's tough to get a King movie made right now, and it's like, yeah. really. Um, but uh, but it, it didn't happen. We couldn't get anybody to do to do the film, and uh, then I went off and I did Hush uh, mm-hmm. while we were waiting for Before I Wake to kind of get through its. Uh, it's it's purgatory um and uh he again popped up on twitter um said wow i really liked hush and and again i kind of shrieked and ran around in the circle (laughs) for an hour and he's um, so great about being supportive of the things he likes and he knows the benefits it gives yeah he really uh, he's he's incredibly generous with that and and um, I, you know, now now that I've actually gotten to to speak to him a little bit, it, it's been really exciting just to talk to him about stuff that we're watching. Yeah, you know, and just to yeah. say like, oh my god, have you seen Marianne? You know, yes, oh my god, yeah, yes, like exactly. it's really fun just to kind of geek out a little bit. Yeah, as yeah. as he was enthusiastic about the haunting of Hill House. Yeah, yeah, it was another, and and by then, um, we were already kind of down the path on on Doctor Sleep, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Gerald's game really kind of happened because he tweeted about Hush, uh-huh. um, and I Netflix um, at that time, you know, had really kind of come into its own. They weren't really the players back in the original days when I was trying to shop that around. And uh, I had lost the rights in the meantime. Someone else had gotten Gerald's game. Really? And, yeah, that's right. I remember that was happening. Oh, it, it was. Yeah. They, those rights ping ponged all over the place, yeah. and you know the. 
the the option windows are, are really rigidly defined because right. rightfully so Stephen King doesn't just let his stuff get attached exactly and let, not, and let it go out there forever yeah know? it's like you can have it for a year yeah we'll but see. but yeah. at the end of that year you're you're going to get a phone call and it's yes. gone yeah. and so I'd lost it and and um and they were coming up again and uh Netflix had said look if no one else is going to make this movie we would love to make this movie mm. And it all just kind of worked out there. And it's not an expensive production. This no. is a couple of people in a bed yep. for 90% of the movie. It was very low risk for Netflix. Yeah. And, you know, it, the, the, the fact that they were so supportive of creative direction that a lot of studios, if they're trying to get a movie ready for a wide release, are not going to be supportive. Right. They're going to make it way more kind of broad. And they, um, they prove that you can have a hit movie on Netflix without theatrical big time big time and that kind of became a home for you what with uh haunting of hill house and you know you've you've done very well by netflix and they've done very well by you uh they've they've been wonderful to me and and it's you know it's a home of mine now for at least another three years um you know i'm i'm there well you're there for a while the haunting of bly manor next haunting of bly is shooting today I was, uh, before I walked in the door, I was, I was uh, communicating with several people on set, checking wow. in on a few things. But wow. yeah, they're shooting right now. That is um, fantastic. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank and Hill you. House is such an amazing accomplishment. Thank you. I, I, I am incredibly proud of Hill House, As which, well you which should is be. brutal. Five um, and six. Whoa. Yeah. Both of those episodes are remarkable. Uh, I, I thought for a while I would not survive episode six of the haunting <laughs> I, I thought that might be the last thing i was ever going i didn't do. think i would either as a viewer <laughs> <laughs> it's well and as someone who's who's you know suffered through that kind of unique pressure you feel when you're doing a long take right you know that that was to me it was like hanging over the edge of a cliff for, for those who haven't seen it it's virtually one take from beginning to end it's, and when it's it brutal. isn't it's hidden yeah it yeah. was, uh, and, and it remains the most difficult thing I've ever been a part of, and the product of 200 people Amazing. performing way above and beyond. You know, like we what, what our, we asked of our dolly grip for that, for that episode, it's criminal. You know, uh, <laughs> and there should be yeah. a dolly grip Oscar or Emmy in yes, store for him. Yes, there should. He pulled <laughs> off a. I think he he told me it was a 235 point turn. Oh my that God. he did in the third shot. That's you know? amazing. Um, and I love the yeah. actors that we share. There's kind yeah. of a repertory. I've worked with Henry Thomas three times. You've worked with him several times, one that we'll get into in a little bit. Oh, yeah. Annabeth Gish is one of my most beloved. Elizabeth Reeser is in Nightmare Cinema. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I love seeing you've created this kind of group, a uh, repertory group of actors in a way that seems to be the same philosophy I have. Well, you, you, I'm sure it's exactly the same. You, you work with the people that you trust and, and that you, you develop love. that. Sh- yeah. You like having them on a set with right. you. <laughs> they make your, they make every day at work better. Absolutely. And, and that's a beautiful thing, you know, and we, we've also, you know, you, you have worked with Cynthia in a way that's very similar to the way I work with my wife and, yeah. and, you know, it's, it's really kind of, it's wonderful to have this family, this production family that yeah. you get to grow. Um, and, you know. Uh, Henry Henry Thomas, besides, you know, I consider him a dear, close, kind of lifelong friend at this point, yeah. um, is one of the finest and most underrated actors. He's working. so 
great and such a good guy. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, it's exciting to see him pop up in things like this in surprising ways. And again, we'll get to that, but let's go right to the Overlook. Yeah. You did a really difficult high wire act. So did you. (laughs) Well, yes, but you were working with Kubrick and King on either side. We kind of ignored the Kubrick side of things. You weren't able to because Warner Brothers was making a sequel to the Kubrick film. Yes. They weren't making a sequel to the book, right. which you you knew you were, but you also had to pay homage to this iconic movie. Tell me about that tightrope walk. It's, uh, oh man, that and episode six of The Haunting are the same feeling for me. Yeah. That, that same... I felt like I was going to throw up the whole time. <laughs> I, I, I think um, the 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 challenge for me with it is if there's one thing throughout my life as a cinephile and as a constant reader, hmm. um, I know specifically how Stephen King feels about the Kubrick film, right? Know, in great detail, uh, right. you know probably more than than anyone. You know, kind of scene by scene, I would imagine. Well, for us, um, King wrote the screenplay for the miniseries, 100% of it. And the whole reason it was made was because The Stand was such a success. ABC said, what do you want to do? And it's not a secret that he really did not like yeah. the Kubrick film at all. So we made the book, though he well knows the difference between the language of cinema and the language of print. And so... But we were able to not have that homage issue that you had to deal with because most people know The Shining by the Kubrick Jack Nicholson version. Right. Yep. It, it's um. It's 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 been a strange feeling because, you know, I saw the Kubrick film before I ever read the novel. Right. Of, and, and most yeah. people did. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and I had this very strange thing when I read Doctor Sleep that as I'm reading this beautiful quintessential Stephen King novel, and I'm so in love with Dan and with Abra and with Rose, the hat who I thought was one of the best King antagonists I'd come oh, across in a, a long great time. Character. She's so cool. I'm reading this great story. And in my head, I have this hodgepodge of imagery. Um, that's just running rampant where I've got so much of Kubrick's iconography mm-hmm. tearing through it. I have images from your film, from your from your miniseries, racing through my mind, mm-hmm. and I've got all this new stuff, you know, that had nothing to do with any of the previous incarnations of The Shining. That's right. this brand new, very different, very cool story, and they're all kind of boxing with each other in my brain. Right. Um, and it was really cool, you know. It it, it made for a really fantastic. Um, experience as a reader, but it was a very schizophrenic one as, <laughs> yeah, at the same time. I bet. And, you know, those little things that, you know, he's very clear in the book from the jump, you know, that he's just, he is jettisoning everything from the Kubrick. And whatever you might think yeah. was canon, it is not. You no. Know? And yeah. you embraced the elevator of blood, the twins. Uh, Halloran is, uh, although Halloran was dead in the Kubrick film, not in the beginning of... Uh, no, he's, he's very much alive. Uh, and, and that was not... People asked me about Halloran quite a bit when we were getting into it. And they said, oh, how are you going to handle Dick Halloran? And I was like, that's the easy one. You know, <laughs> yeah. Like, that's the, that's the one that doesn't keep me up at night. He's just a ghost. The scenes right. remain unchanged. I just have to cut back to him and he's not there. And, you know, otherwise I can, right. I can copy and paste it out of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that wasn't the problem. You know, I had a much bigger problem figuring out what number to put on the room. You know, that was right. a huge deal. I um, did see how you handled that very well. I mean, it's room 237, but room 217 does show up. It does. And we, for a minute, I thought I was so clever in the beginning because I, I was like, oh, the, the hotel is run down. It's abandoned. You know, it's rotted over the decades. What if the middle number just fell off the door and it's two seven? So. Yeah. And, and I thought that was going to be the uh, ultimate save that I, I felt like I dodged the bullet. You'd and, make both sides happy. Yeah. And I thought then you, it's, it's a Rorschach test and, and right. everyone's right. But because we had to do the opening and bring him back into the, the overlook, you know, as a kid, I, I couldn't get away yeah. with it. That ruined my plan. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so it, it's been, um, the the amount of specificity that that King has spoken about Kubrick's film with was very helpful, right? Because I could look at the things that upset him and and kind of I had a list of what not to do, um, mm. because the the possibility that I could make this movie and he could come out of it feeling the same way he felt about The Shining, mm-hmm. I don't know that I would have been able. to to recover from that. That would have been horrendous. It would have been okay. devastating. And, and and the opposite has happened. He loves the movie. He loves the movie. Um, yeah. And, well, I, I was very careful from the beginning, you know, because uh, he, he had loved Gerald's game. And when Warners contacted him and said, hey, you know, what do you think of, of Flanagan for Dr. Sleep? And he said, great. And I was like, well, well wait. <laughs> Let me kind of walk you through a couple of things because there's, there's a few things about how I would go about this that I think you know, could potentially really upset you. Like what? Like the Overlook. <laughs> you know, the, yes. like the big one being, you know, what if the Overlook is back? What if right. what if we are, what if this film is existing within the cinematic universe of the Kubrick uh, film yeah. at all? Because it's patterned after the Timberline of Kubrick's film, yes. not after the Stanley, which inspired the book and where we shot the miniseries. And where I just was two weeks ago. Really? Yeah. Wow. Uh, we we opened our press tour at the Stanley. Oh, how fantastic. Um, and it's not one of at my, the Timberline, though. No. <laughs> and, and it's funny. It's I mean, the Stanley remains one of my favorite places on planet Earth. And yes. this is my, my fourth trip there, I, I mean, I'm, I'm certain you have spent an, an amazing amount of time, and, and I'm jealous <laughs> of how much indeed. time you, you were yeah. there. Um, you know, I wrote Hush in Room 217 of the Stanley. I did not know that. Yeah. Kate and I went and stayed there while we how finished the script. How great. Yeah. That must have been inspiring. It was amazing. Uh, just yeah. just staying in that room and, and thinking about, and seeing all the, you know, there are all those wonderful King books that, that fans have left there over the years and, right. and written in, and it's it's really... It's a it's quite quite the mecca for the for the constant and reader. And it's also in the bar. Yeah. The original bar, not what the bar is now. Right, over the, on the mirrored wall is still there, and that mirror is what King was looking into when he suddenly had the inspiration. A hundred percent of the story came into fruition in his mind at that point. Right. And there you were. Yes. In the birthplace. And and it, that has been it, it, it's it's always going to be one of my favorite places in the world. Yeah. Um, and, and so I, the, the pitch I made was, look, you know, I, I think the, the way we would do this, that's going to, that's going to make sense for the studio and is going to kind of what I think could be a really cool version of this movie actually would be, we, we do it in the Kubrickian cinematic universe, but, um, I try to be as faithful to the novel as possible up until the final confrontation. We just changed the location of that. Mm-hmm which in the book is the grounds of the Overlook, right. now, now gone. It's like, okay, well, what if the building's there, but it's, it's, it's dilapidated, restored. we go back in. Yeah. 
But what a cool opportunity this is. Because once we go in, once we actually go inside, yes, I may have to change the ending of the novel Dr. Sleep in a pretty profound way, which is something that I knew potentially could really upset him. Right. But what if I could reach all the way past the Kubrick movie entirely and go back to the ending of the novel, The Shining. Right. What if this was a chance within that Kubrickian visual language to give King some of the elements from the ending of The Shining that Kubrick denied him, mm-hmm. while still celebrating the cinematic legacy of Kubrick's film for the fans? Right. And that, to me, seemed like, if it, if it could be done, that could be really cool. Um, I I felt like it could, but I, I also made it clear that I wouldn't proceed with the film at all uh, without his blessing to do that. Right. Um, it, it would be folly to do that. Oh, big time. Y- you know. It would have been... I, 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 he's my hero. It would have, it would have yeah. been impossible. Well, um, I was scared at first when I saw the trailer. Sure. And I'm sure a lot of people were who saw all these iconic Kubrick images, and you created them. And it was like, oh gee, what's King going to think of this? And what am I going to think of Yeah, it? But no, the fact is, you know, it it really does a lot to placate um, the story issues that King had. That was the hope, yeah. yeah. Um, and it, you know, I didn't want to use Kubrick's footage that felt yeah. inappropriate. But you so. recreated it. Tell me yeah. about that process and how slavish you were to it. Uh, it it was ridiculous actually. We we um so we had access to all of his production design elements. We, we had uh, all the blueprints. We had all the plans. Oh wow! Yeah, everything that Warner's had and everything that the Kubrick estate had. They kind of they opened up the 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 whole kind of treasure trove to us. We did that with Psycho Four. Isn't that cool to do? <laughs> all of the original blueprints, everything, wow. original props, things like that. Which is so it's so fun to talk about because as as I'm looking at you directly over your shoulder. You know, his mother <laughs> is is Mrs. Bates. Yes, <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, it's there is. So you've had the same kind of feeling where you're stepping into your memory of a movie that had a profound impact on you. Absolutely. You know? And a, when you when you go into the Bates Motel, when you, when you go into the Bates home, you know, I'm I would expect that you had the same kind of feeling that that. I know the cast and crew had the same thing when we went into the Overlook. You you know where everything is. Yeah. You, you kind of, you turn a corner and you know instinctively where everything is supposed to be. And you want to play on the audience's anticipation of those things and familiarity with those things. Yeah. And yet, throw them a left hook now. Right. You want to change it up because otherwise right. you're, you're only walking through only backtracking through someone else's footprints in the snow for lack of a better, you know, metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you, you need to kind of do something different. And that was something else that was really important to all of us and to Stephen King in this was that, yes, we can kind of celebrate all things shining here. Um, but the film can never be just a retread of the Kubrick. It has to be its own thing. And fortunately his book lays out, it's, it's such a gift in that regard because yeah. the story could not be further removed from the narrative of The Shining. You know, right. Danny Torrance is the connection. The Overlook kind of looms in his memory, but this story of of him as an adult, his sobriety, uh, this little girl um, and her struggles, and this incredible kind of new antagonist that he created, that story alone 
you know, sustains itself for an entire movie's worth at least. It's a movie. Yeah, yeah. without Absolutely. ever having to go back at all. So we were very fortunate. And that, that brings up an important point. You know, what makes Kubrick's film a great Kubrick movie, but not a great um, adaptation of the King novel, is mm-hmm. Kubrick as an artist is cool and clinical and detached and looks from the outside. Mm. King is very internal, very warm, very human. You can feel the blood coursing through the bodies in his characters. Yes. And that's a Mike Flanagan thing, too, is the humanity of these characters overrides everything else in any movie. I And that I learned from Stephen King, that I learned growing up uh, reading Stephen King. You yeah. know, my opinion of what what characters within the genre are meant to be, how how they're meant to be developed all comes from a lifetime of of reading him and he puts it so beautifully you know that that without love without lightness with you know without without empathy um the horror doesn't mean anything mm-hmm. you know um that that's something that i think mainstream horror is is quick to jettison because it's hard to make an argument that um empathy sells tickets you know, um, it's difficult it, to make that argument. It's, it does. Yeah, it does. It, know, I, I hope so. I believe it. If you don't um, identify with those people, then after the credits roll, no matter what kind of a good time you had, it's gone. It's I smoke. completely agree with you. I, I think without that, it, it evaporates. The, the issue I see is that a lot of films succeed wildly right. without right. it. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the, the problem. You know, I, I believe a movie evaporates if, yeah. if you don't if you don't have uh, if that character hasn't etched their initials onto your heart by the time that movie's over. There, there's no reason to ever think about it again. Right. But more and more, I, I, I see evidence that you know stories that don't prioritize that um, still perform very 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 well. Right. I just, but they're just not the kind of stories I want to make. Yeah, and those yeah. are theme park rides more yeah. than they are stories about human beings. The ones that live forever are the ones that touch our hearts, and we identify with the humanity of it. Absolutely. Um, an interesting point about the writing conditions. King was a wet alcoholic when he wrote the book of The Shining. Yeah. He was a dry alcoholic when he wrote the screenplay, to the, or the teleplay for the miniseries. And so as a functioning alcoholic when he wrote the book of The Shining, and as someone who's been in recovery for decades when he wrote the book Dr. Sleep, which is all about recovery yeah. and alcoholism, um, must have been fascinating. Was that a conversation you had with him? Oh, yeah. no, And, and one of the things I, I grabbed onto the most from the novel, I, I think you're hitting it on the head, that The Shining is about what he thought at the time his drinking could do to his family if he didn't get it under control, and he didn't have it under control. Um, and then you, you, you look at the same man, you know, looking now at the youngest character from that story, but now he has decades of sobriety behind him. Mm-hmm. His own children have grown up to be about the same age he was when he was wrestling with those demons. You right. know, they've got kids of their own now. Yeah. Um, and he has been able throughout his life to completely kind of reclaim his agency over his own demons uh, when it comes to addiction. Um, those kind of the, the the idea that the shining and Doctor Sleep are, are two different sides to the same coin mm-hmm. of one of the most profound, two different pages in the red book yeah, yeah. Uh, of one of the most kind of defining 
things in Stephen King's life. You know, that's fascinating to me and beautiful. And, and that was something that was really critical going into this was, you know, the shining is addiction. This is recovery. Um, you know, the, uh, a lot has been said too about the difference between the Kubrick film being ice and the book being fire, you know, yes, and, and exactly. how to kind of get back to that. Yeah. Um, the, that coldness versus the warmth, kind of the heartlessness and the, and the cynicism and, and the, the, the kind of indifference of the universe of the shining in the film versus this deeply empathetic kind of deeply caring and, and beautiful, you know, redemptive story in Dr. Sleep. All of that was, was what made this so irresistible to me um, and provided for some of the moments that really not only made me want to make the film desperately, um, but turned King around um, right. when it came to the Kubrick of it all. Uh, and, you know, as we had those initial conversations about the hotel, you know, what I was able to kind of get in front of him was, you know, before it, before we, we make a, a decision about how to proceed with this, I just want you to imagine, you know, if, if the overlook feeds on energy and it's dark and it's cold and it's been this way for decades and Dan has to go in alone and he has to walk through it just to wake it up, um, which came directly from a line in the book that he had given to Halloran hmm. that, you know, you are a million watt battery walking mm -hmm. into this place. You know, that's all King. So I said, okay, if he goes in there by himself and he's just walking through, can you imagine the opportunity we have? What if he went to the bar? You know, what if at the bar there's a glass waiting for him? He's eight years sober at this point. And there's a bartender. And we all know this, this is one of, you know, Jack Torrance sitting with Lloyd, the bartender. Mm-hmm. You know, not only is an echo of Stephen's, you know, own experiences at the Stanley that made this whole thing happen at all, um, but is a point of inflection in every version of The Shining that is really, really profound. So what if Dan, in his father's shadow, worried about dealing with the same alcoholism and violence that is, you know, that his father had to wrestle with? What if he sits down at the bar with the bartender, you know, and what if that bartender is familiar? to us um it is so perfect in balance that that's what happens to jack torrance uh, and the rules are all there it's all you know that's yes. what happens to them that's what happened to delbert grady yes he became part of the staff yes he's you know? now uh, you know the sentinel yeah. in a way. And, and and you know i'm just oh no you've mistaken me for someone else you know yeah. it's, it's right right from delbert grady so tell me about bringing Henry into that part. Henry as Jack Torrance as yeah. Lloyd the bartender. Yeah. It's well, a fantastic surprise. I recognized his voice, off-camera voice, before I saw him immediately. And go, ah, I know who this is. <laughs> but there's no prosthetics on him or anything, just hair right. is the only difference. And, yep. and he's Jack. He, uh, so he, poor Henry. I love, I love Henry so much. The phone call... I would love to hear his perspective of this phone call yeah. now. Um, but so, you know, that scene, I'd pitched it to King. That's what made him, that scene is what made him say, okay, go wow. back to the Overlook. That was the scene. Great. Um, A great decision. So that, to me, was, that was instantly the most important scene. Um, it was also going to be the most controversial. It was also going to be a lightning rod for intense opinions. Has it proven to be? Yes, it has. Really? I yeah. think it's magnificent. Thank you. I, I'm very proud of it. I think it, it, it's my favorite scene of the film. Me too. Um, the, uh, 
the pressure of it started instantly because the minute um the minute I typed the word jack you know it just everything changed and the studio was terrified to really? begin with there was this sense of okay well how are we going to approach this because Nicholson is is alive but very retired yes you know? um and the conversation starts with hey we've got this amazing new technology um that can de-age an actor who gives a performance or can actually recreate a, a digital avatar of an actor. Right. What about that? Um, and my, my reaction to that was no. Uh, <laughs> Very good reaction. And I, I find that technology to be ethically problematic, mm -hmm. you know, um, especially because it's one thing to talk about an actor who's still alive and you're trying to make Samuel Jackson look younger for Captain Marvel. That's right, one thing. Right. Um, it's a completely different thing to talk about, okay, how are we going to do about Scatman Crothers? You know, that's a completely different conversation. Mm -hmm. And that's where it gets in, to me, to, to very dicey ethical grounds. And I've got Wendy, I've got Dick Haller, and I've got little Danny to yep. contend with. And whatever we're going to do, it has to be consistent, I feel like. We can't make a different rule for Jack. And organic. It's got to not take you out of the movie. Yeah. It's got to be about Dan, and it's got to be about the story. And it sucks you in even more. Hope. Yeah. It, it, so we eliminated that as a possibility. And then it came, well, who in their right mind is going to, you know, what actor in their right mind is going to play this part? And I'll share my experience with that same issue. <laughs> I, I imagine yeah. you, yeah, you've, you, and, and by the way, I think Stephen Weber did a phenomenal job playing Jack Torrance. Well, after you finish your story, I'll Yeah, tell I want to hear this. Because I, I expect the punchline is, is what we're, what, where we got to, which is you don't cast Jack Nicholson, you cast Jack Torrance. Exactly. How do you find someone to play that part? And because we'd had, you know, in the script, we had this gift from, from The Shining that let us know because of Delbert Grady that, you know, this is Jack Torrance saying he's Lloyd. You mm -hmm. know, that means that for 95% of the scene, I'm looking for someone to play Lloyd the bartender. Right. You know, I want him to look enough like Jack Torrance or Jack Nicholson if we're in that Kubrickian world to remind me of that, to kind of tip my memory in that direction. But otherwise... This is a new actor's interpretation of a character who's also playing someone else and only needs right. Jack Torrance only comes out here and there in these tiny little bursts. Um, and so then it became about, you know, do we cast lookalikes? Do we cast impersonators? It's like, the last thing I want is a Jack Nicholson impersonation. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, I want a great actor to play this part. And Henry Thomas, for me is one of the people I trust with my life. You know, um, I called Henry, you know, we had just finished uh, haunting together and had a great time. Yeah. And I said, look, I've got two parts in Dr. Sleep that I think you would be great for. Um, the first is Billy Freeman. Um, he's Dan's best friend. He's a sponsor in AA. Yeah. He is a just stand up guy. He's a great friend. You know, this part, you've played this part, you know, you can do this with one hand tied behind your back. We'll have a great time you know, for a couple of weeks shooting this. The other part I have is one day. <laughs> but here's the thing. <laughs> Every move you make will be scrutinized like you wouldn't believe. Um, every single thing. And there are going to be people sharpening their knives that are destined to hate this simply for existing. Just yeah. the fact that you're there... I'm here to somebody. attest to that, by the way. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. No, no, yeah. You've, yeah. you've been through this and more. And... Uh, and so Henry's, 
you know, he, he was appropriately terrified and he requested time to think about it, which I thought was perfectly appropriate. He went off and thought about it. He called me back a, a day later and he said, look, if you're, you know, you're stepping into the meat grinder here, you're stepping into Kubrick's shadow, something else that we have in common. We were part of a very, we, we were saying when we got together today, we're yeah. part of a very small club here. It's a small club. Um, There's only a couple of us in it. <laughs> it's kind of an amazing club though. And, and we, we've been through things no one else will go through, which is really <laughs> neat. Um, but he said, if you're doing that, uh, let me step into Jack and we'll, we'll live or die together, man. And, He's one yeah. of the bravest actors I've ever known. Fearless. His performance in Chocolate, where he actually becomes a woman experiencing being made love to physically yeah. is just so brave oh, yeah. and fantastic and he never questioned it for a moment he just committed and it's it's really funny and scary and humiliating at the same time well he's he is fearless and and there was there was this thing we talked about psycho 4 uh-huh. and and I said you know can you imagine being this actor who has played both Norman Bates and Jack Torrance. Exactly. Like, can you just picture that for a minute, no matter what people think about it, you know, yeah. like no matter if anybody gives you attitude at the convention or you, you know, you, you read the comments, don't read the comments, Yeah. but you know, like you will have had this incredible, like what, what a playground you will have had Yeah. Um, to step into these iconic roles. And, and he, he went for it and yeah. um, you know, uh, we shaved his head. So oh, that really? he could, so we, he could we had do to the do wig, the hairline, yeah. the Jack, uh. Jackish hairline. We didn't want it to be exactly Jack. We just right. wanted it to be close. Close enough. Um, and he said to me as as he walked, he was terrified going to set. Yeah. But we got to walk in to the gold room, you know, and like just being in the space creates a feeling. But then, you know, there's also Ewan. And this scene is of critical importance to Dan Torrance's yeah. journey as a character it's kind of his most defining moment in his life confronting and, facing his dad yeah and his yeah. own addiction and, too exactly. everything the, the all whole the legacy demons. yeah all in one scene and since we're into spoiler territory i'm not i can say it <laughs> and, and he doesn't have much longer to live hmm. you know and and so f- yep. to me it's like this is really dan Tor- danny torrance's moment like yeah. this is this is the apex Everything has built up to this, um, and that it's a quiet conversation. You mm-hmm. know, to me, that that's the stuff that that gets me excited and makes me want to want to get out of bed and get on a set and do yeah. something. Yeah, um, no, it's great. Well, you know, when we were casting the miniseries, first of all, once it became known that we were going to do it, all these Kubrick people, the yeah. Kubrick fans think I'm the worst human being in the world because I'm remaking Kubrick. No. <laughs> oh, I know. No, it's, it's, yeah, but there's a you know. powerful, but casting it, that. you knew, and this was the lead role, not one day as Jack Torrance, but you knew that every review was going to be so-and-so is great or not, but yeah. they're not Jack Nicholson. Right. You know, yeah. it was an iconic role, um, but nobody wanted to do it. We went through so many people, and nobody wanted to do it. There were a couple of British actors who, you know, they don't have the same issues of TV versus features and an iconic role like that. It's just a great opportunity for a great role. 
in one that has much more of an arc than the original movie did. So much more. And uh, For Jack and Wendy. For Jack and Wendy. And Wendy was rewritten not to be such a dish rag in this version. But we were three days before shooting, and everyone had said no. And King, we're in a casting session, and Stephen Weber was a star of a hit sitcom I had never seen, which is a good thing, because if I had, I would have thought, oh, he's that goofy guy. He can't be Jack Torrance. And he he read for us, but King had said, if if we don't cast this today, I'm pulling the plug, because we were to shoot three days after that casting session. So Rebecca had been signed early on. And she was in the casting session with me and Steve and the casting director, Lynn Kressel. And we're sitting in the room. Weber comes in, willing to read for us. That's also and a huge a deal. TV star. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nobody will read for you if, if they are the star of their own hit series. And he blew us away. He's amazing. It was just astonishing. And the movie was on again. <laughs> you know, we were getting ready to to call it a day and just walk away from it. We could not. And the only actor who read for us of that stature was Weber, and he was he was it. I adore his performance. Oh, I adore yeah. his performance in that. He's it, so good. And and what you guys accomplished as far as bringing back the tragedy of Jack Torrance. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's a heartbreaking, oh. heartbreaking performance. Nice. And he does such a good, and he's in every scene of the show. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, well, it's all on his shoulders. And it's funny because, you know, the, it's, it's, it's one of my favorite scenes of the book, and you guys brought it to life in such a beautiful way. Um, his final moment with Danny, oh. when he's got him cornered with the mallet. Yeah. Um, and they have that little conversation, and he tells him to run. And you I, have a tribute to that. I do. Oh, I've, I've been, I've been uh, trying to honor that scene uh, um, throughout my career. I did the same scene in Oculus. Wow. Um, I didn't it, realize yeah, that when it's, I saw it's, it. At yeah. the end, it's little Tim and Rory Cochran in front of the mirror, and he's got the gun to him. Wow. Yeah, yeah, and and, and yeah. He, he, he touches his hand. Uh, and he comes down and he tells him to run. And that's all because of Jack and Danny. Uh, um, and I've got to watch that again now. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's one of the... And I remember, you know, I watched, I watched uh, the miniseries live as it aired the first time. Right, 97. Um, and uh, I was in college. And it was a big event for me and, and for my friends and, and my roommate um, to, watch, uh, to watch your work. And I still, to this day, adore, oh, adore The Shining. Thank I adore you. Adore what you did you. with it. I, I love that miniseries. That. Um, but I got in trouble even at the Q&A um, for Oculus at TIFF at the very beginning of, of my career. Really? We did a Q&A and on stage I said, you know, because I, I had said this to Rory Cochran while we were shooting Oculus. I said, this scene is so important to me because this is Jack Torrance and this is Danny Torrance. And if you haven't seen what Stephen Weber did with Jack Torrance, you really need to see what Stephen Weber <laughs> did with Jack Torrance. And Rory brought this up. Uh, to the whole audience at TIFF. And he said, you know, Mike was telling me the whole time, you know, how like Steven Weber's better than Jack Nicholson. Um, <laughs> and the whole audience, you could just hear this like, whoa, Ooh, yeah. yeah. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> yeah. You know, these are two very different characters. Completely. Like the, the Jack Torrance that Nicholson created is not the same human being yep. that Stephen King wrote or that... Stephen Weber played an entirely valid characterization, and absolutely iconic for iconic, good reason. Yes, and 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 amazing. You yeah. know, um, I I still think that you know the Nicholson Torrance. You look at him in the car, 
yeah. um, when Danny pops up between them. And I'm like, he's going to kill everybody. <laughs> yes. Like, if it's not this hotel, it was going to be something. It would have happened at a McDonald's playland. Yeah. You know, at some point. David Cronenberg said to me the problem with the Kubrick Shining was that Jack, they cast the ending. Yeah. He's crazy from the get go and gets crazier. Yeah. Rather than that arc of this disintegration of a guy feeling the guilt of his alcoholism being so strong that he couldn't control himself from badly injuring his beautiful boy. Well, and you look at, at the beautiful kind of extension of very relatable friction within a marriage mm. that he and Rebecca uh, de Mornay mm-hmm. bring to that. There's a scene uh, that you did, I believe, on the staircase in the lobby of the Stanley itself, yes. right? That wasn't a build. No, that was the That's actual it. lobby. Yes. Uh, when he confronts her with the, with the mallet. The mallet, yeah. Um, and the venom that's there, you know, is 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 stunning in in the performance that that he's aiming at her. But also, you can see the entire ghost of this marriage that was built on a foundation of love, right? All of that is yeah. there, and all the complications, all the different roads, that kind of tangled ball of 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 conflicting emotions that a marriage yeah. becomes. Well, we have that one scene in front of the fireplace. It's it's a full act, and it's just the two of them in front of the fireplace talking where her face is lit by fire and his is lit by the moonlight through the window, giving the ice versus fire kind of feel awesome. back and forth. And all it is is dialogue, but they're so honest and truthful with each other. And the dialogue that King wrote was so informed by a marriage that has gone through many permutations. Oh, yeah. And and negotiations. Yeah, exactly. Which is something else. In in the Torrances, in the book, and in, in, in very much in, in, in your miniseries, the negotiation that Jack and Wendy have gone through based on the way he's failed the marriage, um, failed his sobriety, and failed his son, endangered his son, the series of lines in the sand and rules and consequences that have been negotiated between these two in an effort for the marriage to survive. Yeah, they want it to work. They're not going to give up. Yeah. Yeah. Then you go back and look at uh, the the approach in the Kubrick film, Mm -hmm. and there is never for a moment uh, even, even a hint of that equity. Yeah, they're 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 not on an even keel. Not at at all. all. You know, and and he steamrolls her from the jump. Um, So that by the time he's backing her up the stairs at the end, this is just the, this has been what's been happening the whole film. Only all the pretext has been taken away. The mask is off. Right. That's all it is. Yep. And which masks off, you know, which, which is, (laughs) it all works together. Like it's, um, yeah. It's it's, as if it were written that way. (laughs) It's as if the shining is a really amazing story. Um, but yeah, and that's what I think is kind of so, so fascinating about this. Cause we're, there have been four directors, you know, ever yeah. that that have spent time in the overlook like yeah. a, a meaningful time and it's it's you it's stanley kubrick you know now it's me mm-hmm. and and it's steven spielberg you know yeah. and and it was funny too there was a period of time when we were first developing this uh where we talked about you know what about the the younger viewers today what about the teenage market that you rely on you know to to drive the box office of horror which interestingly, you know, when you look at our last weekend, yeah, well, yeah, well, I want to talk about that. No, too. we can, yeah. and we totally can, but but we talked about okay, well, what what happens to the viewers who don't know The Shining, and yeah. and it's this it's this 
think I tripped on even in the beginning where I was like, people don't know The Shining? Well, yeah, yeah and I, selling it as a sequel to The Shining. Yeah. And that which Warners chose to do in this campaign. And that was kind of where they put a lot of the weight. Yeah. Um, but, but there was a sense, too, we, we all talked about it. We said there are going to be viewers that come in and look at this and say, I think this movie ripped off Ready Player One. <laughs> oh wow um that's funny. and i think that happened yeah. i think those yeah. people you know that that they exist out there and, and i'm sure you're right but my mind boggles isn't yeah. it something yeah because to me it's not even like what do you mean you don't know the shining i'm like what do you mean you don't know the shinings yes. you know what What do you mean <laughs> that you're not part of this f- like fantastic de- not even a debate but this 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 fantastic exercise that exists between the book and the film and your miniseries, you know, yeah. this, this beautiful ballet of these different interpretations of one man's momentary panic, you know, in this hotel, way up on top of the planet Earth, you know, almost up yeah. in the cloud layer, alone uh, with his wife, drinking his face off and having a moment where he thinks, my God, like, what would happen? What could this do to my family? Yeah. And, exactly. and that it's, it's that that moment has created kind of these now it's decades of exploration into this in, into this that that anxiety i think speaks to so many people it, it resonates with so many people absolutely we can't do it alone is no. kind of a big message from this you know yes. and family is so hugely important so the box office was disappointing to say the least yeah and Right now, we are in such a renaissance of King. Is it King fatigue? Is it relying too much on on um, this being a sold as a sequel to the Kubrick film from 1980-81? Or is it that it should have been released two weeks ago for Halloween? You know, I don't know. You know, I've, I, and I've heard all of that. Um, you know, I, I, I know it's a, it's a it's something that has been. The, the focus of really intense conversations this week because one thing that for me and for Trevor, my producer and the cast and the crew and my execs at Warner Brothers, we all were really happy with the movie. You yeah. know, we, we were, are and very King. proud of it. Yeah. King's thrilled <laughs> yeah. with it. Um, I think, I think the, the feeling that we all had in the beginning was just kind of shock. You know, I, I think... Well, if ever there were a sure thing, you would think it would be Dr. Sleep. Well, and even, you know, we there's, of course, you, you don't like to think about the numbers too much no. because no one, when you talk about, you know, the movies that endure and the love of cinema and things, yeah. you, you never kind of open... I've never been to a film class where, where you're analyzing a movie you adore and someone's someone's like, in the box office on this one. You know, like, no Other one, than it Star matter. Wars, maybe. Well, sure. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's not... It's not it's not a barometer for the quality of a film. And that's not what the filmmaker should be having in mind anyway. Right. They want to make the best movie possible. Correct. And then it's up to the people whose job it is to sell it. Well, and, and then it belongs to the audience, right. too. And we're joining a pretty great club, actually, of, of underperforming Stephen King titles, which he pointed out to me Saturday morning. Uh, yes. <laughs> you know, uh, sure. like he, he was very, very quick to say, hey, you know... <laughs> I remember the weekend the Shawshank Redemption opened. You oh, know, I yeah. remember that feeling. You're having a similar feeling. What, you mean the best um, movie in history right? according to IMDb? Yes, yeah. that no one saw. Right. Uh, that, that was a catastrophic financial failure. Yeah. Um, and then he said, and you know, this also happened to The Shining. Yeah. Um, 
And if, you know, he's like, you could win two Razzies and still be on par with The Shining. <laughs> Um, and it's like, I guess that's, that is absolutely true. It won two Razzies, you know? Wow. Uh, wow. yeah. Um, and, and, and so, you know, I, I think the, the, the takeaway for me was I experienced an almost unprecedented amount of creative support from major Hollywood studio to, to release a very risky movie that is by no means kind of painting by numbers, uh, to the studio genre checklist you right. know, at all and they were supportive of me and remained supportive of me throughout the process yeah. and we all believed in our campaign we all believed in the film um we we all went into the weekend feeling very proud of the work we did and we came out of the weekend feeling very proud of the work we did you know it 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 stings for sure because you want a great outcome not only for everyone who poured so much work into the film uh but you want a great outcome because I, I, I want chances to do stuff like this again. You know, that, and that's the big thing is, is that um, I, my, my feeling about the film itself will never be affected by right. box office or anything like that. Where I, I start to get nervous or sad sometimes is that I want studios to be more willing to, to take risks yeah, to on gamble. big release. Gamble, yeah. you know, spend more money, do big kind of legacy horror titles and don't do them as a jump scare delivery system. Exactly. You know? A franchise. Yeah. yeah. Like yeah. We, and That's we, what it's become. They were so good with us about, I had said at the beginning, I said, I don't want to do jump scares. And they said, okay. <laughs> and that's insane. Like for, for a major studio, that is such a, an amazingly rare and beautiful thing. Yeah. And the, the one thing about Hollywood and box office is that, yeah, it doesn't define the quality of a movie, but it's a ballot box and Hollywood, if nothing else, and people will complain about, well, Hollywood never supports this kind of movie or they don't yeah. prop up this indie or they don't give theatrical opportunities this way. It's so audience driven. Yeah. Hollywood will do what people pay for them to do. And if they do something, if they take a risk and the audience shows up, that gives them more incentive. Yeah. They'll to do take it another again. Risk. They'll yeah. do it again. Yeah. And, and other people all over town will take the same risk because they just did and it worked. And and so that's where I get sad is is that, you know, I I don't know, I don't know that I'll be able to kind of do what I got to do on this one again on this in this model. But that's also okay. Yeah, but so, film yeah. is also eternal. You know, yeah. it's a different world now with all these platforms. People discover movies. You know, Hocus Pocus was a flop when it came out, and now it's this ubiquitous well, thing. Every how and when beloved, yeah, yeah, like and profoundly beloved. You've you've created a great accomplishment. This film is the film you intended to make. It's going to find its audience one way or another. And that's the whole point of making movies and telling stories is to communicate with an audience. Otherwise you're masturbating. Correct. And, and that's kind of the, that brings me to something that we touched on uh, in our last conversation that stuck with me quite a bit. Um, as we were, we were talking about riding the bullet. Ah. Uh. Um, we were talking about before I wake, yeah. we were talking about how personal that film yeah. was for you. Um, those how, were our movies. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and, and we, we were talking about kind of the, the importance that we both felt in, in what we were saying, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's something that, that has stayed with me quite, quite profoundly, uh, since we sat down and, and talked uh -huh. about that. And, uh, it was something I got to discuss 
when I was doing press for this because people mm. naturally um, talk about the ending. Yeah. And uh, they talk about, you know, Kubrick's worldview and, and King's <laughs> worldview and, and how can they be reconciled? They contradict each other and your worldview. And it's like, well, it's not even about worldviews anymore because, you know, Stephen King in the novels, in both The Shining and in Dr. Sleep, is talking to himself, he's talking to his wife, and he's talking to his kids. Yeah. And it paints the portrait of a lifetime's journey of that tug of war between the responsibility and love he has for his family um, and his addiction to alcohol, right? It's all right there. And it's going to be there long after he's gone. And yeah. it's going to inspire and touch people in amazing ways. Yeah, moving, and it's a on. shared story. It is. It's, yeah. it's, it was Because it's a story of human beings and marriage and parenthood and, and weakness and strength, you know? And I looked at I looked at the book Doctor Sleep when when I first sat down to work on the script and I was like, what is it about, you know? And so this is about recovery and sobriety and responsibility, yeah. you know, and about paying it forward and and sacrifice ultimately. And the um, same, you can say the same thing about the book of The Shining. Yes, you can. They have the same theme, and they approach it from different directions. And interestingly, you know, The Shining is the scariest book I've ever read. It's so, yeah, terrifying. And Dr. Sleep doesn't try to be that. Not even a little. Dr. Sleep is an entirely different animal, and I think maybe that had some impact on, on the box office because they wanted a scare machine, perhaps. Right. And what they got was something much more contemplative and human than that. Yeah, it's not, it is not a horror story the way The Shining is a horror story. I think right. because Stephen King writing Dr. Sleep isn't as terrified of himself because of the work he's done, because of the recovery yeah. he's gone through. Yeah. But I, I was thinking about what it means to shine and, and kind of what, what he talked about in Dick Halloran says it so beautifully in the book where he says, you know, the, the world is a dark place. It's a hungry place and it eats what shines. Mm. And that, that to me was such a chilling and heartbreaking thing because that's when I think about my kids and, and, and when I think about just the world in general, that's the scary thing to me. And it is way more contemplative horror. You have to sit there and think that through yes, for exactly. that to scare you. But it really scares me. And the idea that the, the way to protect yourself from that world is to hide that thing about you, is, mm -hmm. is to hide that light mm -hmm. um, so that no one sees it, so that you're safe. You know? And the King's story, if you go all the way back to the redemptive ending of Jack Torrance, you go all the way back to The Shining, you know, the message is very different. It's shine on. It's, it's let it out. Right. And that's where we ended the movie. And that to me was, you know, box office aside and all the other stuff aside, you know, we only, those of us lucky enough to tell stories, you know, we have a finite number of them that we're going to tell. Uh, at a certain point, we don't have anything left to say. Hopefully, because we're just not here. Right. You know? We run um, out of breath. We run out of breath. And and Stephen King, I think, is incredible because he's so prolific. He's left this library of knowledge and mm -hmm. experience for not only his family, but for the world. And that, that's a profound gift. Yeah. But I, I would think about what happens when, um, when I'm not here anymore and when the only thing left are, are the movies. And my kids as adults or their kids, you know, get to watch something that I did and they get to get to know me a little bit. And I think about 
and I think about this in the context of what you were saying about writing the bullet and what we were talking about with those films, what was important about them, why they meant so much to us, despite the problems, you know, with distribution or despite reactions from individual viewers here and there on either of the projects, why they're important, what the legacy of those is. And that's when it occurred to me that in each of my movies, for all the fun I get to have, say I get to say one thing at the end, and I'm saying that to my son growing up, or I'm saying that to his kids, you know, what do I want to say? What, if, 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 I get, if this is the last thing they're ever going to hear from me, or they're going to hear it from me long after I'm gone, what's the point, you know? And it's, it's interesting because people will come at you and me and Stephen King and people who tell stories that end on a note of hope or that end on a note of love um, and say, oh, there's the sappy ending, you know. Especially in this genre. Especially yeah. in this genre. And, and where to me, where it needs it the most. Yes, it's because you can tell a story that's horrific and dark and cynical and it's got all that and the world has teeth. All that's there. But it's like, but so, so what? You get to end on one little note. You get to, the last sentence you get to communicate just through the work after you're gone is, is a note of forgiveness, is, is a note of, of hope. You know, that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Mike Flanagan, thank you so much. And Dr. Sleep's audience is going to widen and deserves <laughs> to. Thanks for joining us again on Postmortem and congratulations on such great work. Thank you so much. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would let the world know about it by reviewing and rating it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you have comments or questions for our Ask Mick Anything shows, send them to producer Joe at Joe Russo Tweets or to at Mick Garris PM on Instagram or Twitter or the Postmortem with Mick Garris Facebook page. This is a brand new address, so don't forget it. That's at Mick Garris PM on both Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to see my vintage and recent video interviews, making of documentaries, and audiobooks of some of my short stories, go to my website, mickgarrisinterviews.com. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. 